The following podcast includes explicit language. Sorry, Mom. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of February 26th, 2024. On this week's show, we'll talk about the controversy over court storming and whether it should be banned for good. The Washington Post's Sally Jenkins will also join us to discuss the NCAA scoring record that Caitlin Clark just broke and the AIAW record set by Lynette Woodard that the NCAA does not acknowledge. Finally, we'll talk about whether the NCAA is actually going to exist next year next month or tomorrow, given all the courtroom L's the organization is taking. I'm in Washington, D.C. I am the author of the book The Queen and just announced this past week, the host of an upcoming slow burn season on the rise of Fox News and how the left responded to it. Listen up for that later this year. Also in Washington, D.C., Stefan Fatsis. He's the author of the books Word Freak, A Few Seconds of Panic, and Wild and Outside, and will be in the arena with me Joel tonight to watch the WCAC Catholic high school basketball top 10 matchup between Paul VI and Gonzaga. Top 10 national matchup. We got some yeah, good top 10 national matchup. That's what here. I here. Mean. Yes. We've got some good high school basketball here in the DMV, Joel. My local public high school, Jackson Reed, formerly Woodrow Wilson, is also ranked in the top 25. And looking to finally, after several years of making the state finals, they call it in D.C., which is weird, uh, where they play all the private schools, get to play with the public schools, looking for a championship there. So this will be a nice little preview. We've got a lot of a lot of high school basketball on our docket, Josh. We do. Joel Anderson with us from Palo Alto. We've got to, at some point, cross off. Like, we have to go to some high school sporting event together. It's yeah. got to happen. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, I'm, I'm a huge uh, high school athletic supporter. I try to go. I haven't been in the last couple of years for reasons. But, um, I, yeah, I would love for, for y'all to come out. I don't think I've been to a high school game since maybe I was watching Najee Harris play high school football out here in the Once Bay. Once you see Najee Harris, what do you, what do you even need to go to? Nothing's going to get better than that. I mean, the thing is, you know, I did have this sensation. I, I saw Vince Young play in high school a couple times. And after I saw him, it spoiled me so much that I didn't even enjoy high school football in quite the same <laughs> way. And you could probably say Najee's sort of similar. I was like, well, I've kind of seen the But you're checking of off each position at a time. You've now, you now need to see, like, the best wide receiver, the best, you know, center. And then you can just yeah. check them off one at a time. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, the Bay isn't a great, it isn't necessarily a great uh basketball place. But yeah, maybe, you know, one of these DC schools will come out here and and show us how it's done or something. We want to thank our Slate Plus members, as always, for making the show possible. And this week, as we do every week, we have a bonus segment for you, our members slash subscribers. We're going to talk about our experience with sports video games. Uh, We're going to get to the EA Sports College football game in a minute. What were the formative sports video games of our youth, you will find out if you are a Slate Plus member. If you want to hear that and bonus segments on other Slate shows, get ad-free listening and support us. You need to be a Slate Plus member. To sign up, go to slate.com slash hangupplus. That's slate.com slash hangupplus. On Saturday afternoon in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, Wake Forest closed out a four-point win over eighth-ranked Duke, and fans of the Demon Deacons couldn't contain themselves. Before the clock even ran out, they'd poured out of the stands and onto the court and one of them smashed into the Blue Devils' star player. Here's a clip. How 
Filipowski is being helped off by members of the Duke staff and you saw the immediate bear hug surrounding him as this court storming is in full effect with Filipowski hobbled. Wow. Wow, indeed. Uh, Stefan, replay showed a fan running into Filipowski's leg. And this comes a month after Caitlin Clark collided with a court storming fan after Iowa's lost at Ohio State. So what do you think happens now? And is this the last time we'll see fans charging onto the court? Should it be? I'm going to answer the last two first, no and no. After the game, Duke head coach John Shire called for an end to court storming, saying, when are we going to ban that? How many times does a player have to get into something where they get punched or they get pushed or they get taunted right in their face? It's a dangerous thing. I remembered that I did an afterball, a couple of afterballs actually, about court and field storming, one in 2014 at a hang-up live show where I traced the rise of the and fall of field invasions in baseball, which peaked in terms of anarchy in the late 60s and 70s, and then were wiped out by the sport pretty much overnight. And I'd done another one a year earlier about a rash of court stormings in college basketball. The question in 2013 was when, not whether, it's appropriate to storm a court. Almost no one, including me, seemed concerned about athletes getting hurt, maybe because it had happened so rarely. So two things seem to have changed since then. One is the frequency of court storms. An ESPN story over the weekend said there have been at least three a week in the last three months. And the second thing is the injuries to Filipowski and to Caitlin Clark. So now the pro-court storm argument has been neutered, and the question will be whether to find a way to ban it entirely, as Shire suggested, or at least to figure out how to prevent players on the opposing team from getting hurt when some 19-year-old doofus sprints to center court staring at the video that they're recording on their phone. The latter seems more likely to me, Josh, for reasons that I guess we'll discuss, and it also seems more reasonable because... The only ways to ban the celebration entirely seem to be through police state big brother kinds of shit, facial recognition, rings of cops, which seem out of whack with the offense here. Yeah, the AP had a story where they quoted a college professor who provides training in crowd management, and he's talking about these facial recognition technology systems that are used to prevent hooliganism in soccer. And... You know, I'm imagining, so, okay, you implement this technology, which is not going to happen because it's too expensive, but you implement this technology, you identify all the fans. Are we going to have like a January 6th style prosecution where it's like, you know, thousands of people are brought in, if not to, you know, in, in court, but to like identify them, to ban them from being in the arena? Maybe that's the answer, Joel, is to rebrand this from court storming to insurrection Maybe it's a it's a terminological issue, but like I have seen in recent weeks these efforts to put out like a rope so the players can like exit behind the rope. And I saw that in like a, a game that Iowa played after Caitlin Clark got ran into and they were successfully ushered off the court. The issue in this game was that the fans ran onto the court before the game was over. And that I think, if we're gonna capitulate to this, if we're gonna say it's fun, it looks cool. Like ESPN actually advertises it and celebrates it as a part of the reason why the sport is cool. If we're going to acknowledge that, then the thing that needs to be prevented, there needs to be some ability somehow to prevent fans from going on the court before the game is over. There needs to be a chance for the players to get 
off the field. And I don't know if that's like a social conditioning thing, if it's like a loudspeaker announcement, if you need, because I don't know if these like fines and penalties are going to work. So I just don't know if there's a technological way to do it other than to just like tell people don't fucking run onto the court before the game is over. Ooh, like electric fence, like with dogs. Activate the electric fence around the court. I mean, I really, I, 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 and I don't know, I mean, uh, I take the crowd control experts and their guidance here, you know. <laughs> yeah, with utmost respect, I mean, because obviously, I mean, if, if they're telling us that it's very difficult to prevent people from doing this and that the technology may be there, but it's still not perfect. They also say, um, Joel, that if you I, ring I, the court with a lot of police, that that could actually make it worse. Worse. In some ways. Yeah, Right, yeah, and I've actually been on sidelines at games where you can sort of see um, the fans preparing to challenge, you know, security law enforcement personnel under those circumstances. It's like, yeah, you're right. It's like they almost get amped. So given that we all seem to think that there's not much that you can do here, I think the, the big thing that really just worries me is that one thing that people have noticed in the years since the COVID pandemic is the aggressiveness of sports fans at, at live events. And that even sort of tracks with the rise in online abuse directed at players. Like even the NCAA even launched an initiative just just last year looking into online abuse against athletes. So there's this real climate of anger and abuse being directed at players. And then you have a circumstance where the fans have an opportunity to run onto the field and confront these players. It just seems like we're poised for like a particularly explosive outcome. I mean, just just this weekend, what went viral in sports was Kevin Durant having to confront a couple of fans mm-hmm. on the floor behind a basket who had called him bitch. I remember earlier this year when Alabama fans were taunting Texas players with racist and homophobic phobic slurs from the stands. You know, there was the BYU volleyball incident from a couple years ago where, you know, one of the Duke volleyball players said she was being heckled with racist taunts. So, I mean, I've always sort of looked at this in, a, in another way, I'm just like, man, you've got a lot of people in those stands that feel really entitled to their ticket and their place in the, on campus. And a lot of athletes who are really vulnerable in that moment, it's really, really bad. And my, my biggest fear was like, if a black athlete lashes out in that moment and punches a fan, I was always hoping, I was like, well, they better not, they better not punish them because they're putting them in a really bad circumstance, I thought, Stefan, that what are you expecting to do under those circumstances when fans are coming at them and they've been yelling at them all game? And then, you know, you've got this moment of physical confrontation. You know, Joel, you've just sort of turned this conversation into something that's more serious. I mean, I think we've all looked at this as the way I think like the broadcast networks and even the NCAA and coaches look at it as, hey, this is part of the experience. It's fun. It creates these wonderful images. It celebrates what sports are supposed to be, these outbursts of joy over the accomplishment of athletes. But the history of this stuff also indicates the potential for threat. There have been, you know, pitch invasions in soccer going back more than a hundred years where fans were angry. When I, I did that after ball 10 years ago, I did some historical research and I found one incident, 1947, fans of the NBA Syracuse Nationals stormed the court to protest the officiating in a game and a fan tried to knife William Pop Gates of the Moline Blackhawks, who was one of the first African-American players in the NBA. The local newspaper afterward described what ensued on the court as a race riot. Yeah, that's, you know, 
75, 77 years ago. But we know, as you just articulated, Joel, that the cocktail for this shit is, is there because of the way fans feel entitled and because of the volatility of the relationship between players and fans. You said it shouldn't be banned, right, Stefan? This, this argument is difficult, right? It's like, it is fun. It is fun to watch. If you can get the players the hell out of there, then you've made progress here. You let don't the fans want punch to see, each other. Let the fans punch each other. Yeah. Well, I mean, do you think it should be banned entirely? I mean, and you've just articulated how there's really no way to ban this entirely. So what do you do? Well, it doesn't seem to happen currently in the NFL. Doesn't seem to currently happen in Major League Baseball. Doesn't seem to currently happen in the NBA. Maybe the biggest explanation for that is college kids being yes. the the factor. They're right on the court. There's a sort of... There's no barrier. And there's a contagion effect around it. And I think, you know, social media gets blamed for everything, um, including things that it shouldn't be blamed for. But I think it used to be, like, when I was looking back at our old notes or your old afterball, Stefan, you know, there was, like, a guide to storming a court that was written on, like, the old ESPN.com that was like, yeah. look for a TV camera. Well, everybody's got a fucking camera now. Like, you don't need to look for a camera. And I think people are running onto the field um, or onto the court to capture that image. It's like when you go to a concert now, like, everybody's filming it instead of watching mm -hmm. it. It's like, you know, we can concern troll about it. It's just, like, the reality that we're, that we're living in. And, like, when you know, Joel, you said like players getting taunted or whatever. A lot of this stuff happens on camera because people want to record their interactions with athletes. And so some people want to record, I guess, the fun of it and the, the kind of turmoil of it and the excitement of it. But I think some people are like looking for clout and want to like get a shot of like them yelling at a, a player or touching a player or whatever. And, you know, Jeff Eisenberg of Yahoo wrote a piece about, you know, this this latest discussion of whether this is going to get banned. And he said, I'm going to quote at length here, nothing changed in 2004 when high school senior Joe Kay suffered court storming injuries that left him partially paralyzed and prevented him from playing volleyball for Stanford. Nothing changed in 2013 when NC State forward CJ Leslie had to lift a fellow student to safety after he was thrown from his wheelchair. Nothing changed when New Mexico State players exchanged punches with onrushing fans or when Ohio State's Jaron Sullinger accused a Wisconsin fan of spitting on him or when unruly Kansas State fans taunted and body checked Kansas players or when a Des Moines Register columnist fractured his tibia and fibula after getting knocked to the ground. So this isn't new. Obviously, a Duke player is more high profile than anyone else in college sports, and the Duke coach probably has more pull. So that's that's the changing variable here, Joel. Yeah, and I also think, you know, you mentioned social media as a part of this. I don't know if you guys were paying attention after Filipowski got hurt, but if you look at the comments that associated with the video showing Filipowski getting hurt out there, there were so many fans saying, oh, the Duke kid, he he sold it, or he's the one that tried to initiate contact. Same with Kaylin Clark, so people, people yeah. saying that she yeah. got hit run over on purpose, trying to sell the call like Shea Gildas-Alexander. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, do you think a potential lottery pick, do you think somebody with Caitlin, Caitlin Clark, and I'm not saying that athletes aren't, can't have a short fuse in that sort of moment and want to lash out. Um, I think any, any athlete that's been in that circumstance can kind of relate to, man, I wish I could give it to this fan out there. But it doesn't make any sense for them to want to even be 
it, it within, you know, 10 yards of any opposing fan if they can help it. But you can already sort of see the narrative taking shape that, oh, well, they're the ones that are doing it. And so I just think all that is just really a toxic brew. Mm-hmm. And I didn't mean to make this such an unfun conversation because there's a part, like all of us, like I grew up watching college sports and you can sort of like love the, the field storming and the court storming and like those are responsible for some of the most iconic moments that I can remember in, in, my, in my life as a college sports fan. But um, I just think the danger far outweighs whatever cool points you get from watching that shit. And I really, I, I mean, again, I trust the security experts. I'll take them at their word if they say that it's very difficult to prevent this. But I like it doesn't happen anywhere else. It's presumably that there is something that can be done to discourage this sort of behavior from going on. And again, like there are things that could be done. Nobody would like them. Let's say Wake Forest would have had to forfeit the game that they just mm-hmm. won. Or the that, students nobody would, would like never that. be allowed into another <laughs> basketball game or sporting event yep. at their university. Well, that's just not tenable. Like, how are you gonna how are you gonna identify you know, 10,000 people. I think the thing that you could do easily is what I just said, make the team forfeit the game. If you would be willing to do it, that would, that would stop it. But I don't think anybody wants that. Well, if somebody did get identified though, or if enough people got yeah. identified and banned, it could be. Yeah, I disagree with Maybe. that. I, I don't think you have to identify every student or person that walks onto the court. There'll be plenty of ways to identify who's on court because they're all posting it on social media. Do you guys think if there's a court storming in a game between Quinnipiac and Ryder. Nobody gets hurt, and it's like to win the whatever, uh, some some big game. You think that there would be any will to ban 2,000 fans because of that? No, none whatsoever. But you think, but you think it could maybe, be done. You think it could be done. But maybe 12. You could ban 12, and that might be enough of a deterrent to be like, hey, man, they got that guy. He's not allowed to go to Quinnipiac games anymore. Um, so... I, I think it, it I think somewhere. it's obvious, and we've said it repeatedly, but the only reason this conversation is happening is because Caitlin Clark and famous Duke guy. Like if it if it was like another woman player, like a Memphis player was taunted by a Tulane fan when Tulane fans rushed the court the other week, and like it became a part of. It's like cited occasionally when. It's like this thing happened and this thing happened. But if it was like only that, nobody would care. It's like these high profile incidents are the only reason if like some other player we've never heard of got hurt, like as Jeff Eisenberg pointed out pretty capably in that article, like this kind of stuff, stuff exactly like this and worse has happened for 20 years. There's also no consensus here, though, Josh, because Angel Reese of LSU stormed the court with fans like last week. Got run over and said it was worth it. And said, got knocked down. But guess what? It was all worth it. All in caps. Go Tigers. (laughs) (laughs) What was that that court storming? I'm not sure what it was. LSU beat Kentucky men's basketball in the last second. It was awesome. Great court storm. (laughs) I mean, I guess the thing is, it's like it always comes back to this. It's like, well, if, you know, why have any laws, you know, if people are just going to break them? You know, I mean, like if you... (laughs) Yeah, like like maybe like maybe we should put something on the books and then like the people that get caught they get to be the unlucky ones and maybe that serves as a is court storming the jaywalking of laws here? Yeah, I mean, how are you going to stop this? Glad we glad we resolved that. I'm glad we didn't actually, <laughs> because resolving it would mean screaming strong opinions about this overwhelmingly sports talk radio topic. And the next segment, we're gonna have Sally Jenkins of the Washington Post here to talk about Lynette Woodard.
On Sunday, the Iowa Hawkeyes unveiled a decal on the spot on their home court where Caitlin Clark 10 days ago jacked a logo three to break Kelsey Plum's all-time NCAA women's basketball scoring record of 3,527 points. Very cool moment. But lost in the celebration was the truth. Clark hadn't actually become the top-scoring woman in major college women's basketball history. That record is held, and at least for a few more days until Clark breaks it too by Hall of Famer Lynette Woodard, who scored 3,649 points for Kansas from 1978 to 1981. At that time, though, women's sports were governed by the AIAW, the Association for Intercollegiate Athletics for Women, and not by the NCAA, which has since refused to recognize the athletic achievements of women who played under different banners. Sally Jenkins of the Washington Post wrote a terrific column about this over the weekend, and she is with us now. Always great to have you with us, Sally. Love being here. Glad to be back. Let's start with a history lesson. What was the AIAW, and why did it exist when the NCAA had been running college sports since the early 20th century? Well, the great irony here is that the only reason the AIAW existed was because the NCAA didn't want women. So a group of female administrators would go to their athletic directors and college presidents and say, we would like to start women's sports. And they would be told, no, uh, we don't have the funding for you. In one really interesting incident, a wonderful coach named Mary Nell Metters at Tennessee Tech, one of the early pioneering programs, went to her athletic director, a guy named Flavius, who'd been a college football player in the 1950s, this grim crew cut dude. She said, I'd like to start a women's basketball team. Can we have some funding? And he sneered at her and said, I'll give you $100. Basically, the only thing she had to drive her team around to games was this dilapidated old van where the door wouldn't even close. So she was afraid to get on the freeway because she worried that the door would slide open and her players would fall out. So anyway, those are the types of stories that you hear. The AIAW uh, formed because a bunch of female administrators at these colleges, Texas and Illinois and Kansas and Tennessee, uh, got together, North Carolina State, got together and formed you know, their own organization in order to help raise money and fund and hold tournaments for women ballplayers. And, and that was the AIAW until they got on TV and became popular. And also Title IX came around and suddenly these male administrators had to comply with uh, some federal law and give women funding. And so they swooped in and, and committed a hostile takeover, basically, of the AIAW and pressured it into folding so they could absorb the tournaments and the teams. Right. So the AIAW existed basically in the 70s. And then in 1982, the NCAA took over. Yeah, they essentially committed a hostile takeover. And Walter Byers, the president of the NCAA at the time, I mean, they as the AIAW grew and became popular, the NCAA started talking about what to do about this. And Walter Byers, the, the then president of the NCAA, hazarded the opinion that he thought women's sports were worth, you know, funding to the tune of about 2% of the overall athletic budgets. So that's the backstory. And one of the things about Lynette Woodard's record is that it was accomplished against, you know, really good other teams. I mean, really legendary historical teams like Cheney State, Immaculata, uh, you know, Vivian Stringer was coaching at Cheney State, and Kathy Rush was coaching at Immaculata. Pat Summit was in her early days as the head coach at Tennessee. You know, these were great, great tournaments. They were very, very competitive with some really legendary players. 
Sally, you, you mentioned that, that basically the NCAA takes over governance of women's athletics in 1982. And obviously there's been a lot of changes in leadership and mission over the last 40 plus years. But what's the resistance to incorporating these past records like they do women's coaching victories uh, pre-NCAA? Yeah, it's really weird because, you know, I asked the NCAA for a comment on this and I got back like a four paragraph single spaced explanation that was pretty hard to decipher but it basically stated that because those games were competed, you know, before these schools were NCAA members, they didn't regard them as NCAA records. Well, that's crazy. I mean, Kansas was an NCAA member, just not for women's sports because the NCAA didn't recognize or want women's sports. So, you know, these were NCAA member schools at the time. I mean, look, for most of uh, Michigan's early football existence, it wasn't a member of the NCAA. I mean, the NCAA didn't come into existence until 1910. Michigan started playing football in 1879, you know. So that ex explanation doesn't really make sense. And my only guess is that they're ashamed of their sexist past and their terrible miscalculation. And they want to brand women's basketball now as purely an NCAA product. And so, you know, from a branding standpoint, they created this standalone NCAA record book which is crazy. They they don't do that with any other era in men's sports. I mean, you know, before the NCAA, before 1910, I mean, there were other, you know, alphabet call letters. As Lynette Woodard says, these are call letters. That's all they are. And the thing is, uh, as you point out, it's not like the ABA and the NBA or something like that. Like the reason the AIAW exists is because of bigotry, because of prejudice by the NCAA. I mean, it's similar to and baseball, the decision that finally came in 2020 to recognize after decades upon decades, more than a half century, that the Negro Leagues were a major league and that the statistics should be incorporated into the major league record books. There's since been issues with the data and like it hasn't actually happened yet. And so I guess that's a question, too. Um, yeah. What do we know about these statistics and is there an issue once the NCA hopefully eventually decides we are going to do the right thing here, would it be a kind of seamless incorporation where we would immediately know what all the records are? It should be a seamless incorporation because, uh, you know, it's a good comparison with the Negro Leagues, but, you know, they, these were schools who were NCAA members. They were playing, I mean, Lynette Woodard played at Allen Fieldhouse, right? Yeah. She played on that court. She played, actually, the early, the AIAW played with a regulation-sized men's basketball. They didn't play with the small ball. There's no problem there. There's no problem with the venues. These women were playing on standard basketball courts, you know, in arenas where uh, other major collegiate men's basketball was played. You know, they had to fight for practice time. The only difference is that they had a lot more obstacles to overcome. Uh, they didn't have the resources that men had. But, you know, it's it's crazy. I mean, again... Are you trying to tell me Kansas was not an NCAA member in 1979 or 1980? Of course, Kansas was an NCAA member. It's ostracism. You know, it's an act of erasure. It is an act of erasure, Sally. And when you start digging into just the history of the AIAW, you realize just how sophisticated this organization was, how professional to use a college sports word. The AIAW staged 41 championships in yeah. 19 sports in 1981. They had a national television deal. Um, this wasn't like, in some ways, 
you know, the Negro Leagues, you can argue that the statistics weren't good. There were the record keeping wasn't good. Newspaper coverage was poor. These were because of racism <laughs> that had the, yeah, right, I mean, racism. Yeah. These were college sports that actually had athletic departments that kept track of who scored how many points and what the final scores were. Of course they did. I mean, you know, women's basketball was played at the Olympics in 1976. So again, you already had sophisticated women's pro and all those players came out of the collegiate ranks. You know, Pat Summit, Lucy Harris, Nancy Lieberman at Old Dominion. Again, these were NCAA member schools that simply didn't uh, care for funding women's sports. And so the women were self-funded and self-operated. But the officials, you know, conducting those games were female athletic directors like Joan Cronin, Noralyn Finch at, at uh, North Carolina State, Joan Cronin at Tennessee, Donna Lopiano at the University of Texas, who who built the University of Texas into an absolute giant of a program with Jody Conrad as the head coach. They were careful record keepers, and they were administered by women who were uh, assistant athletic directors or held other titles at the university. They were members of their collegiate administrations. I mean, these weren't people grabbed off the street. And so we, before we started recording, we talked a little bit about Lynette Woodard, the player herself, right? Because we've, you know, one thing about it is that there's been a lot of attention played to Caitlin, and understandably so. But now that this is, you know, Lynette Woodard's, you know, moment in this in the spotlight for a moment here, right? Can you tell us a little bit about the kind of player that she was? Because you, you would get the feeling that she played in the 50s or 60s or something at HBCU and not as recently as 1981 at Kansas, right? <laughs> yeah. So, so she's, she, she, first of all, she was magnificent. I mean, she could play all five spots on the floor. Uh, she was a little bit like uh, a female Magic Johnson. She could, she could play the one through the five, but she could really, really shoot. I mean, if you, if you can call up highlights of her on YouTube, there's plenty of footage of her out there. She could play up around the rim, but she could just kill you from the mid-range jumper. There was no three-point line at the time uh, in women's basketball or men's for that matter. Um, so, you know, her record's all the more impressive because, you know, she didn't have a three to bolster her points with, but she was absolutely deadly. She could really elevate and she had a really soft shot. You know, in 1984 on the Olympic team in Los Angeles, that team really burst onto the national uh, scene in a way that grabbed male attention for the first time. Cheryl Miller was on that team. The McGee twins were on that team. Those are other names that get absolutely erased by the the NCAA if if they're allowed to sort of obscure AIAW records. And uh, I can remember my own father, you know, Dan Jenkins saying to me in 1984, have you watched that team? My God, they're great. You know, so like a, a Hall of Fame male sports writer was really electrified by them. And Lynette Woodard was the star of that team. She really was. She was the leader. Uh, she and Cheryl Miller were were the leading scorers, and they were terrific. I mean, they 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 took the women's game into the air for one thing. One of the things that I remember about that team is that if you watched really early women's basketball, you know, sometimes the uh, the athleticism wasn't as great at all five spots on the floor. You know, you'd see one or two great players. You might see a Penny Toller or you know a Cheryl Miller, but then at the at the other spots on the floor, you might not see great athletes. Kim Mulkey, by the way, was a point guard on that Olympic team, and her records get tossed at La Tech if you don't you know, acknowledge the AIAW. But the 84 women's national team, that USA team that went to LA, they were up off the floor, they were up around the rim, and they were absolutely beautiful to watch. Lynette Woodard and her comments, including to you, Sally, has handled all of this with a lot of grace, I think has said the two things that need to be said here. Number one, Caitlin Clark is great. Number two, don't forget us. And 
this is an opportunity to have the yeah. kind of conversation that we're having now about the the women that, that played before. I, I can promise you one person who hasn't <laughs> forgotten Lynette Woodard is Lisa Bluter, the head coach of Iowa. Oh, yeah. Because she she's she's a bit from that era, too, you know, not as a coach. But I mean, I think that she grew up influenced by those players and, and that era and those coaches. I mean, Tara Vanderveer played and coached the first part of her career as an AIAW player and coach. Look, you take away the first 10 seasons of Vivian Stringer's career if you don't acknowledge the AIAW. You take away the first seven seasons of Pat Summit's coaching career. And again, it's part of the profound inconsistency of the NCAA that that the personal coaches' records, victory records, are acknowledged in the NCAA rulebook, but the players' scoring records aren't. What sense does that make? They were coaching somebody, right? Well, that's right. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Before you finish up, let's say a few words about Pearl Moore, who scored more than four thousand points for uh, Francis Marion, which was an AIAW school. Sally, on a smaller level, um, right. it's now. Hey, Josh, I'm going to interrupt you. She scored thirty-eight eighty-four for Francis Marion, one hundred and seventy-seven points for a, a junior college before she got there. There you go. So, Sally, I, I think a, a couple points here. It's a great opportunity for us to learn about another great player in Pearl Moore, um, small of stature, but scored a crap ton of points. Um, but also, I, I think it shows, again, the kind of enormousness of the AIAW as an organization that it went not, it didn't just include the Kansases, but also was a structure that could accommodate schools like Francis Marion. Yeah, I mean, the AIAW, Pearl Moore played for Francis Marion under a, a great coach named Sylvia Hatchell, who goes on to North Carolina to win a national championship with the Tar Heels at North Carolina. But Francis Marion was a Division II AIAW school. They had three divisions, just like, you know, an NCAA would. They had major schools, Division One, which Lynette Woodard was a Kansas Division One player. Then they had uh, smaller schools like Francis Marion and College of Charleston which was their division two. And Pearl Moore was the the absolute regnant scorer in that division. Again, you know, played for absolutely first-rate coach in Sylvia Hatchell. Caitlin Clark needs 33 points to pass Lynette Woodard, and that could happen at Minnesota on Wednesday or at home next Sunday against Ohio State. She needs 51 points to pass Pete Maravich's overall NCAA mark. It seems to me like the right thing for Iowa and Caitlin Clark to do is to recognize uh, Lynette Woodard and the bucket that passes her. Maybe put another decal on the court if she breaks the record at home. As Josh said, this feels like a completely blown PR opportunity on the part of the NCAA. I mean, do you think there's any chance that the powers at Iowa or even the NCAA will step up in the next week and bring Woodard to the game, honor her, do something similar to the celebration that occurred after Clark broke Kelsey Plum's record? I mean, they absolutely should. It's it's a little bit of an embarrassment at this point for the NCAA, but they can certainly correct it and no one would think the worse of them. I think it's 100% consensus among coaches. I mean, if you ask Tara Vanderveer, I asked Tara Vanderveer, shot her an email the other day. She absolutely believed, she said, as Tara said, these are basketball records, you know, and again, they're not buried. They're not geological artifacts that we've uncovered suddenly. They've been there. Gino Oriemo, I think, acknowledges it. I mean, across the board, every coach would tell you this is the correct thing to do, including, I'm, I suspect, Lisa Bluter, although I haven't talked to her directly about that. But but again, I, I don't think there's much controversy here among women's basketball players and fans. Sally, so obviously this is, you know, Caitlin's going to 
eventually break Lynette's re- record here. But you've watched a lot of women's basketball, you know, over the years here. Like, where does she rank among the best players you've ever seen in the game? Oh, I mean, <laughs> certainly up there. I mean, you know, it, it's always a difficult thing. But like, if you put Caitlin Clark on a court with, um, you know, Cheryl Swoop, Cheryl Miller, Lynette Woodard, you know, Shamiqua Holtzclaw, Diana Taurasi, Sue Bird, you know, she, she's in that category. The important point is that the Lynette Woodards belong in that game, right? They really do. I mean, if you watched her, if you pull up her highlights, you will say, oh, she absolutely belongs in that pickup game. Sally Jenkins is a sports columnist for the Washington Post. We'll post a link to her most recent column, the NCAA erased an entire generation of women's sports on our homepage. Everybody should go read it. And Sally, thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure, guys. Always glad to be here. Up next, we'll talk about the latest ruling against the NCAA and its fight to retain control over athletes. Last week, the NCAA got the latest in a string of rulings, all of which basically add up to everything you stand for is bad and wrong. To be slightly more specific, this time a federal judge granted a preliminary injunction in a lawsuit filed by the attorneys general of Tennessee and Virginia. That judge, Clifton Corker, he unleashed a corker. Uh, He wrote that NCAA rules banning athletes or boosters from negotiating over financial compensation during the recruiting process or when they're transferring, quote, likely violates antitrust law and harms student athletes. Joel, what this injunction means in the short term is that athletes and the schools recruiting them can now talk totally openly about cold, hard cash. What is your take on that and where all this is headed? Well, to take your your last question here, where's this headed? It's headed where we've always known that it's headed, the end of the NCAA as we currently know it. And I think a majority of college football fans have all predicted that someday the top schools would eventually break away and start governing themselves so that the players could be true school employees. And that that even included fans who don't believe the players should be paid, right? We just knew that this day was coming. And in the interim, generations of college players have labored under a system where they've had very few rights or ways to better their working conditions. And that's from what the scholarships covered in terms of total cost, to practice scheduling, to a better and fair process for transferring and eligibility. Certainly, like when I played, like if you wanted to transfer to a school closer to home because you were homesick, or because the coaches recruited a future Pro Football Hall of Famer at your position, your coach could simply tell you no. And guess what? I'm also denying you release for every single FBS program within 500 miles of your mom's house. Like, they could do shit like that. It happened all the time, and we were just supposed to sit around and wait for the day when someone or some attorney would marshal enough resources and attention to right all of these wrongs. Like, I think of guys like Reggie Bush, Terrell Pryor, Cam Newton, who got slapped with suspensions and were trailed like they were bank robbers, just in part because they were trying to avail themselves of their actual market value out there, which was constrained anyway. So last week's court injunction in Tennessee was both sort of anticlimactic and momentous. There are pretty much no rules that the NCAA can enforce right now. So any school can call any player right now and say, hey, you want a million dollars to come play at our school? Might be interesting. I mean, I doubt that's happening at some broad scale, but I'm sure that it's happening. So now that I know 
that there's been a lot of attention to that and all these poor coaches who who have and have always had freedom of movement, a tremendous amount of influence and power and compensation that always makes them the best paid public employees in any state. I'm thinking right now about the thousands of players who worked under a system so bad, so patently unfair, that even the NCAA's first employee and leader, Walter Byers, wrote that the exploitation was the result of a, quote, neo-plantation mentality that exists on the campuses of our country and in the conference offices and in the NCAA that the rewards belong to the overseers and the supervisors, right? So, Stefan, for me, given that we've always known that it was bad and wrong and a fatally flawed system, what's notable to me is how long we lived with Mm -hmm. it rather than the fact that it's probably over right now. And it's not just that we knew it, Joel. It's, as you pointed out, the architects of the NCAA and the existing system, the faux amateurism system that was prevalent for a century or more, knew that it was wrong. They knew that they were scamming students. They knew that they were taking advantage of athletes' desires to play their sport and go to school at the same time and pretend that they were inextricably linked. So what we're seeing now is just the way that shit falls apart, right? Gradually and then suddenly. Um, The sheer volume of legal action against the NCAA and individual conferences right now, it just makes it inevitable that the system is going to collapse. Um, the NCAA is going to run to Congress and has been trying to get Congress to intervene to pass legislation that would effectively protect its status quo. But the volume of cases that could result in multi-billion dollar judgments and an ordering of the reshaping of the structure of conferences and the way schools conduct business it just seems like there is no going back at this point. I mean, there are there are antitrust cases, there are class action cases, there are NLRB cases, the Ivy League is being sued for for its system of of, of banning athletic scholarships. It is absolutely overwhelming, Josh. I put in our notes the thing that occurs to me is like, is the is Trump or the NCAA facing more like tonnage of legal cases right now? I'd be interested in somebody doing a side by side comparison. Probably not a good good company to be in if you're the NCAA. And I think you can look at this two ways. I mean, way number one is the NCAA is like clearly fighting a losing battle here. So no matter what they did or what they approach they took, they were going to lose and the whole thing was going to get unwound. And so kind of debating their moves and how smart or dumb whispers dumb they were is just kind of pointless. The other way you can look at it is, man, the NCAA has been really dumb about all of this and just in the last few years. So um, this case in Tennessee and Virginia, um, the way that it came up or the reason that it came up is that the NCAA told Tennessee that it was violating these NIL rules and uh, it announced sanctions against Florida State as well. And the rule that was being broken here is it's okay for players to get money for their name and image and likeness. It's okay for a collective that's not associated with the school to give them money. What's not okay is for, like in the case of Florida State, a member of the coaching staff connecting the player with the collective during the recruiting or transfer process. It's like, who cares at this point? Like, why is why is the NCAA drawing that line in the sand? It's like, seems so obvious 
that that's not going to stand up to legal scrutiny. And so, you know, Joel, it brings us back to the point you raised in the court starving discussion. What's the point of having a law or a rule if you're not going to enforce it? Well, in this case, the point is, if you enforce it, a judge is going to tell you, actually, let me take a closer look at this whole thing. Let's just talk. Like the the only winning strategy here for the NCA is to like have these rules on the book and just like actually not enforce them. Like they've hastened their own demise by trying to enforce this obviously illegal rule. Right, and what's just sort of interesting, right? We talk about the NCAA as if it's some um, you know organization that is totally separate and apart from college these college member institutions, but the NCAA are the colleges. But the problem is that, so let's talk about the current board of governors. That's the highest governing board of the organization, right? Here are the members, the presidents of Georgia, Florida, Baylor, Central Arkansas, Norfolk State, Beacom College, Springfield College, the athletic director of Slippery Rock, the athletics direct reported Babson College, someone at the Ohio Valley Conference. Like, the problem is that when we're talking about the NCAA, like we're thinking, oh, you know, all the schools and FBS and the Big Ten and the SEC, but there's all these other colleges that have all these other concerns and all these other uh, goals in mind when they're trying to come up with the governance structures for schools that it doesn't make any sense anymore. It's not a surprise that Florida and Georgia would want something dissimilar from Norfolk State and Slippery Rock. So the problem is that the NCAA is made up of many, many different members, and the smaller ones have long outvoted and overpowered the larger ones in many ways. And like now that the money is big enough and these opportunities have started to winnow a little bit to cash in on all the big TV money and all this other stuff out here, the major programs are like, wait, why in the hell are we taking orders from Springfield College? Why, you know, what is uh, Grand Valley State? Why should they tell the SEC what to do? So you're right. The NCAA is trying to to have these, these rules on the books. But the problem is that the most powerful and influential members of the organization do not consent to be governed in this way. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's over. It's they're done. Yeah. Yeah. They're done. Yeah. yeah. They're done. And I think the Tennessee and Virginia attorneys general were willing to take on this case uh, on behalf of their schools. It's an issue that unites uh, Brett Kavanaugh, who was like scorchingly anti-NCA and the Supreme Court uh, ruling in the Alston case. A nine-nothing ruling in the Alston case? How many mm. nine-nothing rulings do we have in the Supreme Court right now? Yeah, yeah that's what I was going to say. And it's like it unites Brett Kavanaugh and the most like fire-breathing, like pro-union, you know, people in, in America. It's like the only bipartisan issue in America right now. And a thing that I was thinking, Stefan, in reading about this new EA Sports college football game where, um, you know, this is like the legacy of the O'Bannon case from more than a decade Mm -hmm. ago, which was about athletes and likenesses in video games. EA Sports is now offering $600 to all of these players that are in the game, like 11,000 players on college rosters, $6.6 million. It just makes me wonder, is the better strategy for the NCAA from here to be like, actually, we are we are pro-union now. The players should be employees because, you know, that's not like that great a deal for the players in this video game, like to each get $600. Yeah. The players, when, when surveyed and these like, re- there have been stories in the AP, athletic, whatever, the players actually all seem happy to just get $600, even as some people, like some college sports, like players association type groups that are trying to organize are like, actually, this is a bad deal because you're not getting royalties. But the player's like, cool, $600. I think 
if a union would exist, it would probably be a weak union because of just how big it is. Yeah. And like, just by, by the nature, like the players just shuffle in and out. And it just seems like the NCAA and its member schools would get a kind of certainty that would allow them to like plan for the future rather than just like not having any clue what's going to happen and just being liable for billions of dollars. And so like a players union where the players are employees and it's kind of a weak union, seems like it would probably be the best case for the NCAA at this point. It goes back to the early years of labor negotiations in all sports, doesn't it? You know, the Major League Baseball kicked and screamed for 100 years to retain the reserve clause. And then when they were legally challenged, they capitulated quickly and gained the upper hand over the athletes in a way that enhanced revenue for the entire sport, controlled costs, gave them certainty. And it took, you know, it took 20 years for Marvin Miller and other leaders of the Baseball Players Union to get to the point where players were actually getting something closer to their value for playing baseball. And I think something similar would probably happen in college sports. You mentioned the size of the labor pool, the transience of the labor pool, um, the pliability of the labor pool. Ultimately, these athletes still just mm -hmm. want to play. The lack of commonality, like it's, it's like you were saying, Joel, the difference between Slippery Rock and Florida, it's like the difference between a Florida football player and a Florida, you yeah. know, swimmer or the difference between a Florida football player and a Slippery Rock swimmer. Like that's like a huge disparity in a potential group of employees and a potential class. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's just they're not they're not going to have much in common. And yeah, I, I, that's always kind of what I'm I'm interested in. Like, when are the how are the players going to organize themselves, and who are going to be the people to do it? Because you you hear constantly about oh, you know, uh, the NCAA or the CFP is working with ESPN and Fox to come up with this billion dollar TV thing, and I'm like, well, you know, we're not done. <laughs> You know, like they're they're not done negotiating with the players yet, um, probably. And so I'm just wondering who those people are going to be and what that organization is going to do um, and how they're going to break it up. Because, right, they've got Title IX concerns and everything else. And that's why I actually think even if the NCAA doesn't exist as it does today, there will still be somebody enforcing mm -hmm. rules because colleges don't want to have they don't want to have to stage their own championships and there's going to have to be a rule book right so somebody is going to have to write these rules and enforce them it's just who are they going to enforce them for in what context right um and so like yes like it may not be the ncaa but it'll be somebody else and they'll probably be bargaining against whatever the players bargaining unit is well in the football football always leads the way and the cfp is not governed by that NCAA. And so when all of this kind of breaks down, it will probably break down simultaneously in a whole bunch of different ways. But the CFP is going to be kind of in the vanguard in terms of both the governing body, in terms of the big schools breaking apart from the small schools. But it'll be interesting. Will it be in the vanguard in terms of giving players a share of the revenue? That I think is more debatable.
Now it is time for After Balls, sponsored by Bennett's Prune Juice, endorsed by Kenny Sailors, who says it was okay. The EA Sports College Football video game series goes back to 1993, when the game was first released for Super Nintendo and Sega Genesis as Bill Walsh College Football. It then became College Football USA and then NCAA Football before it went on hiatus in 2014, for reasons that we have discussed, until the now imminent release of EA Sports College Football 25. The cover athletes have included everyone from generic Kansas State wide receiver. <laughs> that is a direct direct quote. Hmm. Generic Kansas State wide receiver. To the final one, Michigan quarterback Denard Robinson. And in between for NCAA Football 08 was Boise State quarterback, that is Boise State quarterback, Jared Zabransky, most famous for leading the Broncos' memorable upset of Oklahoma in the Fiesta Bowl on January 1st, 2007. According to the Oklahoma newspaper, and I will now quote at length, Zabransky grew up on a 1,500-acre potato farm and is estimated he could sling the crop 80 yards across the field toward the potato truck. That comment, made during the Liberty Bowl, was captured on the video game NCAA Football 07. A deep pass on the game might prompt Kirk Herbstreet to say, that reminds me of the time that kid at the Liberty Bowl told me he could throw a potato 80 yards. Joel, what is your 80-yard potato? <laughs> My 80-yard potato. So earlier in the show, we spent a whole segment talking about how college athletes winning their name, image, and likeness rights has fundamentally changed college football and how it might further uproot the system in years to come. And we already know the NIL has been great for women's college sports, helping to make national stars of athletes such as the aforementioned Caitlin Clark, who is now appearing in State Farm ads with Jimmy Butler. But what if the NIL era of major college sports turns out to be a boon for men's basketball? And so this came to mind the other day while listening to Vinnie Goodwill's The Good Word podcast, when he and his guest Kristen Peake started talking about the upcoming NBA draft class. The NBA G League's developmental team, the Ignite, has three prospects listed among the top 15 projected picks in the 2024 draft. That's seemingly a good thing, maybe even confirmation that the NBA's development program for elite players who want to skip college basketball and didn't want to go overseas is working out pretty well. And the pitch still seems pretty good. You know, prospects can make up to half a million dollars for a year spent working with NBA coaches near Las Vegas, and they can play an exhibition schedule of G League teams. But now that the program is in its fourth year, you got to wonder if up-and-coming stars might start reconsidering if the Ignite year is worth it. On Sunday, G League Ignite lost its third straight game to fall to 2-21 and on the season. That makes the Ignite four games worse than the next worst teams in the G League. And it's not just that the Ignite are losing a lot, it's that they're losing by a lot. In the third game of the season, they lost by 59 points. They've also lost by 35, 34, and 31 points. More often than not, the Ignite have been overwhelmed in every game by the older, more experienced competition throughout the NBA's minor league. If you want to get an example of this, just Google Lance Stevenson versus uh, G League Ignite uh, on YouTube. It's very funny. But making matters worse, Kristen Peake was saying is that these games are happening in relative obscurity. The Ignite hasn't had its home attendance listed on its website so far, but I could find only three games that had a crowd size of more than 2,000 people. That's not just a long way from the NBA. It's not even as impressive as playing at nearby UNLV, which is the definition of mediocre. It's 16 and 10 overall and 9 and 5 in the Mountain West, but they still average 5,500 fans per home game. So 
Peek says NBA fans are saying there's not as much use in trying to determine how good the players are in this situation, and the players themselves are sort of bummed out about these nightly beatdowns. Here she is on last week's podcast with Vinny talking about the bleak scene in Nevada. I would check every box score, and they were losing by 30, 40 points. You go to the winner showcase in Orlando, and, and it's just hard to watch. You can't even get a good read for who these prospects are because the games are so lopsided. And you don't know how they're going to be in a plug-and-play situation at the NBA mm-hmm. level. And so for that reason, I mean, you have you have frustration from the scouts' perspective saying, look, we can't watch this. And then you have frustration from the players' perspective saying, like, this is horrible. We're playing in front of 20 fans each and every night because we can't win games. So, hey, look, on the bright side, as mentioned, the Ignite still seems poised to deliver on its promise of producing top NBA draft picks. The top prospect seems to be Matas Buzelis, a 19-year-old six foot ten forward from the Chicago area whose parents played professionally with Lithuania. Peak has him going at number seven in the draft. There's also Ron Holland, a six foot eight wing from Dallas whose season is already over because of a thumb injury. Peak thinks he could go as high as number nine. But the rest of this roster, it includes 35-year-old Norris Cole, who you might remember from the LeBron Heedle days. There's also 37-year-old Jeremy Pargo, who has played a career 86 games in the NBA and 87 in the EuroLeague. And it also includes Isaiah Todd, a 22-year-old power forward who was the consensus top 15 player in the class of 2020, but who skipped college for the G League Ignite. He was a second-round pick in 2021 and now finds himself back in the league that was supposed to kickstart his professional career. And I wonder if he wouldn't have rather spent the past few years making NIL money while playing at Michigan, who he committed to as a high school senior. And it's not like the Ignite's development record is that great. The program has produced four lottery picks in four years, and the rest have mostly been second-rounders. And there's no way you're going to convince me that Jalen Green or Scoot Henderson wouldn't have been drafted as high as if they had spent a year in college. In fact, maybe they might have entered the league with a little more name and face recognition from a March Madness run as opposed to spending a year playing in out-of-the-way towns like Santa Cruz, Sioux Falls, or Edinburgh, Texas. Look, I must admit, when I first heard of G League at night several years ago, I was excited for the players who were going to dispense with the student-athlete facade and get to make money for basketball as soon as possible. They could learn from pros, train with pros, and play against pros. What could be better? And I didn't like the NBA trying to place an age restriction on his workforce, and this seemed like a decent compromise. But it could be that after four years of this experiment, the NCAA finally has a great counter-argument to prospects who want to forego the college experience. You want to be on the floor while your fans storm the court and become the BMOC for an evening, a week, or maybe a whole semester? A local Ferrari dealership will welcome you with open arms, and you can also pretty much play every game on national TV. Or do you want to lose by 30 every night to a team of has-beens and never wases like Lance Stevenson in front of a few dozen disinterested observers? Right now, the NCAA seems to be winning the argument. In the class of 2024, only four of the top 100 prospects are uncommitted. And one of them is Scottie Pippen's son, Justin Pippen. But anyway, the rest of them are all committed or assigned with college basketball programs with Duke, Kentucky, and Rutgers leading the way. That seems healthy for the game, doesn't it? And it got me to thinking that if people who support and love men's college basketball started making the case for itself, instead of telling everyone how broken things are, they might find that they have a decent product to sell, you know, like the women do. That's great. And Adam Silver was talking about this over All-Star Weekend and said we have to look at the Ignite program and it might not there might not be a reason for it to exist after this year. So that was a pretty strong 
lack of endorsement from the commissioner there. Um, you know what this makes me think of? You know what the successful version of G League Ignite was? It was Victor Wembanyama's French team last yes. year. Like, pro team that completely oriented itself around Victor's development, brought in, like, a very highly respected coach, had some veteran players around him, but everybody on that team knew why they were there. And it seemed like that actually worked out really well for his development. So it's it's interesting. I agree with you, Joel. Like, it seems like a good idea. It seems like it wasn't necessarily implemented poorly. And, like, the idea of having a Jeremy Pargo and Norris Cole, because the problem with developing young players, often they, like, don't have a veteran point guard there to set them up or to, like, run the show or whatever. And these guys aren't, like, going to be looking out for themselves. Like, they know that they don't have any kind of NBA future. So, like, even that seems, like, not stupid. But I guess it's just an example of a program that in this, like, rapidly changing world that we're in, like, made sense, maybe made a lot of sense a few years ago and maybe doesn't make as much sense today. Yeah, I mean, I don't think any of us could have appreciated the velocity at which things would change, right? And, like, I don't know if the pandemic, you know, kind of sped that up or whatever. And the idea that men's college basketball would be in a stronger position now than it yeah. had been, like, at any point since the one-and-done era? Yeah, I mean, there's a real chance here. Like, I, and I, I don't know about you all. Men's college basketball is on TV all damn day. Like, all, all throughout the weekend. Like, there's games being played. I watched Wichita State versus, I don't, I don't some team that was terrible. Only 90% but, of the games are Creighton versus Xavier. Like, sometimes there's, only, there's a different matchup. Yeah right. yeah, right. Sometimes DePaul is playing in them, too. <laughs> I will push back, Joel, against your Lance Stevenson erasure, though. That was mm. a little harsh, man. I he had a long I, NBA I career. I, I was I, that. That's not fair to Lance. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Stefan is a longtime Lance Stevenson supporter. <laughs> Watched him play in high school. Actually, he I did. wrote a piece about whether whether he should forego college to go play overseas. That is our show for today. Our producer is Kevin Bendis. Listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out. Go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For Joel Anderson and Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty and Lynette Woodard. Thanks for listening. <laughs>